0: so excited to be here and to be talking on these topics, and I, I like it whenever I get a chance to speak to preachers. I, you know, I am, a, I am a Bible professor second. Uh, I'm a minister at the Wilshire Church of Christ, and uh, I know that this is where the front line is. What you guys do week in and week out, and I know it's not always appreciated. It's not even always appreciated by your own elders. But uh, this is where the front line is, and uh, I am so grateful when we have opportunities to uh, to nourish each other and to give each other some help uh, to, to to do our job better uh, as we proceed. I'm going to ask for a little bit of technical assistance to get my. Um, PowerPoint up. I don't know. Do I just uh, escape from that? Sure. And we so we do down that. Down there. And uh, there it is. And boom. And this will work? Well, I think so. Yay. All right. Uh, oh, thank you. You know how proficient I am with this technology. They gave up on me yesterday at (laughs) Grayberry. He he said nice things about me. Notice he didn't say, and he's so technically proficient, because I'm not. Um, I was given this task, you know, this command we have uh, in the Ten Commandments, in Exodus 20, Exodus 30, Deuteronomy as well, Uh, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay, that made it bigger. That was cool. I didn't know I could do that. I would like it to advance, though. Do you know how to make it advance? I didn't know I could do that. Either. That's really neat. <laughs> oh, nope. Now it's advancing just great. So just caught up, is what happened. It, just, it did all of that at once. We have this command in all three of the tellings of the Ten Commandments. Am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, and keep my commandments. That's a fascinating command right there. Now, as the title of this, or the subtitle of this speech indicates, Uh, Our situation is morphing back into the situation much closer to the the culture in which this command was originally given. We've had the luxury for the past thousand years or so in Western civilization of having a culture that was built on the idea of one God, uh, of of the God who is the creator of all but we know now that we are morphing away from that into what I would call a post-Christian phase of Western culture. It's farther along in Europe, but it's certainly advancing in our country as well. And so we are morphing into a phase in which uh, the question isn't so much God, it's what God, which God, who, and how many, and if. And so this command becomes uh, crucial to us. You notice that God says that he is a jealous God. Um, That's actually one of the names of God. Kanael, jealous God. Why is God jealous? What does God have to be jealous about? Every time I've been jealous, it's because I was insecure. Is God insecure? You know what does God have to be insecure about? He's like perfect. He's all powerful, he's all knowing. There's nothing, there's no nothing in God for him to be insecure about. Whence arises jealousy in God? What is the meaning of this command? No other gods before me. Why is God a jealous God? Nothing we do can take anything away from God. If I don't worship God, am I hurting God? If I don't give God praise and honor, does that somehow subtract from God's power, subtract from God's knowledge, subtract from God's glory? It actually doesn't do any of those things. God is perfect. He's always been perfect. I would love to think that I have some sort of power, but I don't. God is untouched in terms of his essence by what I do. Now, he doesn't like it, obviously. That's a different question. But I cannot harm him in any way. So why is he jealous? What is there about God to be jealous? And the answer has nothing to do with harming God or any insecurity on the part of God. The answer has to do with us, with human nature. Worshipping other gods doesn't hurt God. It hurts us. That's the whole deal. Worshipping other gods does no harm to God at all. It can't harm God. We have no power as God's creatures to harm God. Worshipping other gods harms us. The iron law of religion. You will come to resemble whatever it is that you worship. You know, if there, was, if there was one thing I wish I could insert into the American consciousness now, it is that idea. If you worship money, you will eventually, your whole personality will begin to be shaped by money and the concerns of money. If you worship sex, if that's what really your life is oriented around, your whole life will eventually come to resemble and be orient and and actually come to serve and be an agent of that particular drive, that particular uh, emotion. Whatever it is that you worship, that you will come to resemble. In the ancient world, the gods that human beings create again and again and again uh, manifest themselves both in the, the, the aspirations that human beings think will make them fulfilled and then they distort human beings as human beings come to resemble that which they have created. For us, we usually think everything would be better if we had more power. And so the gods that we often create are gods that manifest power. If human beings set about the business of manufacturing gods, making up gods, we manufacture gods that have more power than we do. And if I worship a God of power, what's going to happen to me eventually? If that's what I focus on, if that's what I say is the highest aspiration, then eventually that's going to define what I think is most valuable. People without power are by definition farther away from God than people who have power. And, and and if I am losing power, that means I'm losing my connection to God. It becomes righteous for me to do whatever it takes to maintain power. It becomes righteous for my country to do whatever it takes to dominate other countries around me. It becomes an obvious manifestation of holiness for us to conquer rather than be conquered. And so on and so forth. We could go through all of the different ways in which human beings have made God's you will come to resemble whatever it is you worship. And so God says, I'm a jealous God because he wants you worshiping the true God because that's the only way in which you can be your true self. That's the only way in which you will not be distorted into some sort of false image. So folks, that actually means something for us today in this pluralistic culture. We are atheists about most gods. There was a time when Christians were well known as atheists. Some of you know the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp, <coughs> bishop of Smyrna, and uh, basically a mob ginned up a persecution against the Christians when a Roman official was coming through town, and uh, and they they got him to condemn some lesser Christians, but they were really after this this ancient and very you know notably righteous. Uh, elder that they had in the church there by the name of Polycarp and so finally they managed to get him on trial and the crowd shouted again and again and again away with the atheist away with the atheist and they and and they and he was going to condemn Polycarp and they said make him say it make him say it. away with the atheist what were they claiming about Christians when they said away with the atheist what were they saying you can talk to me it's okay <laughs> They were saying, "You Christians are atheists. Why? You don't believe in Jupiter, who is the foundation of our, you know, society. You don't believe in Mars. You don't believe in Minerva." You. you All of these gods that we worship and that we show our patriotism by worshiping, you deny them all. You won't even be a part of our culture because all of our holidays and all of our, you know, so much of our culture is tied up with these gods and you deny them all. You're atheists. So they said, make him say away with the atheists. And so they told Polycarp, you have to say it. And the crowd was shouting away with the atheists and then they all got quiet and Polycarp gestured to the crowd. And set away with the atheists. He said, oh, I'm an atheist about your gods. But you are an atheist about the one true God. They killed him. But he said the right thing. And folks, we are atheists about most gods. And we need to be careful that we are not, when we get into arguments with folks today in our pluralistic culture, You need to listen carefully to what people are saying about God and which God it is they're talking about before you engage them in the argument. I've heard a lot of bad, bad arguments uh, or overheard them on the internet uh, where both sides are arguing about a God that doesn't exist in the first place. Let's not try to defend a God that's not real. And let's not get ourselves tied up in knots. We are atheists about most gods, and most people today no longer understand the concept of God. We need to make sure we maintain the concept of God that's revealed in Scripture, and we don't sink down to the level. We are atheists about any gods who are merely superhuman. Most of the gods that human beings create are just made in the image of our desire for power. We don't call them gods today. We call them superheroes. Well, this one's supposed to be a god, but he's also a superhero. He's got a cape, so you can tell he's a superhero. He has no cape. This guy, I wanted that movie to be better than it was. You know, it was sad, because I loved Green Lantern as a kid. Uh, a lot of times, when we talk about God, even sometimes when Christians talk about God, we talk about Him as if this is what He is. He's like us, He's just got more power. You know, He's, he's one of us, just with more power. And if that's the image of God that you're trying to tell people about, then you're setting yourself up an idol. You are worshiping a God that doesn't exist and you're defending to others a God that doesn't exist. Lest you think that that's uh, not real. I took this from a VBS website. You know? God is just all about power. That's the God that we were. He's like us. He just has more power. And and if you want power in your life, that's what you need. And If you want victory in your life, that's what you need. Come on. Let's think about the real God. Let's think about the God that's actually revealed in Scripture. Power is not the issue with God. He's got all the power. But it's real interesting. In Scripture, power is not the way he goes about things most of the time. We are atheists about gods who are merely superhuman. We we are actually atheists about gods who are only able to work when normal processes break down. These these creatures uh, have powers that transcend the natural. And oftentimes when we talk about God, we talk about God as if the only time that he operates is when there's a breakdown in the natural. You know, well, science can't explain it. Must have been God. There was a phrase that went around for a while. It's a God thing. And I like that phrase. I mean, it's not a bad thing. You know, people would talk about, uh, you know, oh, I I didn't know what to do. and, And suddenly, out of nowhere, a friend I hadn't talked to for 10 years on Facebook, they quoted this scripture. And it was exactly the scripture that I needed. It's a God thing, right? Yeah. Well, it is a God thing, yeah. But let's understand the God that we're talking about here. Saying it's a God thing is sort of like a person swimming in the ocean and, and going down with hundreds of thousands of shells on the ocean floor. Picking one up and holding it up and showing his spirit and saying, look, it's an ocean thing. Well, yeah, it is an ocean thing. You're surrounded by ocean things. If God is who the Bible says he is, he made all of this. And, then, and you've, you've never experienced anything that's not a God thing in one sense or another. There are elements of this world where sort of the shadow of sin is keeping some of the God out, you might say. And we've got some corruption and some, and some error and some folly in our world. But everything around you is a God thing. The laws of nature and the operations of nature are as much a God thing as anything Uh, that is miraculous or supernatural. And so we probably need to remember we're atheists when it comes to gods that are only superhuman, that only work when the laws of nature break down. Scripture says, he waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes the grass grow for the cattle, the plants for the people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the human heart, oil to make their faces shine. Bread that sustains their hearts. You bring darkness, it becomes night. All the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey, and they seek their food from God. Do we actually believe that stuff? When I was in fourth grade, I did a little poster of the precipitation cycle. I a hollow ocean area. And then I had little waves, you know, where evaporation, you know, was going and taking water out of the ocean. And, and then I had the clouds up in the sky. And then I had, you know, the cycle of the, the rain would fall. And then I had little rivers flowing back into the ocean. And the precipitate, I learned about that in fourth grade. Do we really think it's God that makes the rain? Or do we think it's the precipitation cycle? Is this just, this is, well, this is Psalms, you know, it's just poetry. Jesus said, God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Well, yeah, Jesus says a lot of stuff. Do we really believe that? Of course we do. If the precipitation cycle is how God does it, that does not change the fact that God does it. God is the creator he is, that's what the Bible says again and again and again. No one else. You did all of this. There was no one beside you. You made all of this. This is you bringing these good things. If you do it through the processes of nature, that's still you doing it. If you do it in some special action, that's still you doing it. This is the God that we worship. And this is the God that if people ta- ask us about, we need to be defending. We're atheists about gods who are merely superhuman. The only God worth worshipping is a God who feeds the sparrow, who brings the rain and the sun, and who sustains all of us in existence. We're also atheists about gods who could be made or born. One pop atheist says the question, he thinks the question that could settle the God issue forever is just this question, who made God? Uh, and he actually stole that. I mean, he got that from Bertrand Russell years and years and years ago. There's not a lot in the new crop of popular atheism. That was the thing that shocked me the most. This, You know, the four horsemen. There's nothing in them that wasn't already in, like, H.G. Wells and Bertrand Russell. I mean, they haven't read anything, it seems like, since 1920. But that's, uh, that's another rant. <coughs> you, you can listen to that another day. Anyway, he asks this question, who made God? You know, because people, his argument is like this. Well, you know, people say that God, you need something to start everything off, and God's the thing that starts everything off, and well, if everything else needs something to start it off, then God certainly needs something to start him off. So who made God? And, And he says that derails all those arguments and stuff. Really? Who made God? We wouldn't believe in a God that could be made. That's, that's a fake God. That's one of those gods that God says, You shall have no other gods before me. That's one of those made up gods. Any God that could have an origin story is a fake God. I mean, where, where in the Bible does it tell us how God came to be? What verse is that? I am. That's right. I am the beginning. I am the end. Before there was anything, I am. There is no origin story. Why is that? Is that just because the Bible's being coy? It says, well, there's some things you don't need to know. Where God came from is one of them. No. Because what does the Bible claim about God? How how strong is God? God. All the strong. Yeah, omnipotent is a Latin word, Latin derived word, that just means all the strong there is, that's God. <laughs> How smart is God? All the, smart. all the smarts. <laughs> Omniscient means all the smarts there are. Is it, there's no limit, infinite, you know, uh, in terms of smart. How holy is God? All the holy. Uh, all, uh, you know, as holy as anything can be, He is as perfect in every way as he can be. That's the, way, that's the picture that the Bible paints of him. This is the God that we're talking about. A God is part How would you have an origin story for that God? If you started off, let's say you started off today with the strength you currently have, and you start taking whatever steroids you know that there are, and you start just doing push-ups and bench presses, and everything, and so every day you get stronger. You get 10% stronger, every day. 10% of your starting strength, you add 10% to that. So you're getting stronger uh, as you go along. You know, it's kind of compound interest there. How long until you get infinitely stronger? How many years would that take? In fact, if you did that for a billion years, we could calculate that, I guess. If you do that for a billion years, you would be at some finite strength. And how far short of infinitely strong would you still be? What is some finite number subtracted from infinity? Still infinity. You're still infinitely short. Any. Any story we could tell, I mean, there are origin stories for Marduk, there's origin stories for Thor, there's origin stories for Zeus. All of those can have origin stories. Batman can have, obviously, origin stories, too, and so can Spider-Man. Superhumans can have origin stories because they're part of the creation. And they are finite beings, they're limited beings within the creation. They're stronger than us, but that's all they are. They're just within the creation. God can't have an origin story. He is the origin story for everything else. But he's already absolute. He can't come from anywhere. Could God make God? Well, yeah, but he doesn't need to. The only being that could possibly bring God into existence is. The only being that could possibly bring an infinitely powerful God into existence is an infinitely powerful God, and he doesn't need to do that. The only way for God to come into existence is for God to already be in existence. God can't have a logically coherent origin story. So, I mean, we don't have an answer to the question, who made God? Because there can't possibly be an answer to that question. That's the whole point. God is the origin of everything else. Uh, he is the answer to that question. He himself does not have an origin. We're atheists about gods who could have an origin story. We're also atheists about gods who couldn't help but be found by science. This one just cheeses me off uh, sometimes. Sorry, do we use that phrase? Cheesed off. Blast from the 60s probably. Um yeah, I mean, again, one of these pop atheists actually made this made this claim that, uh, you know, the question of whether or not God exists, uh, like every other question, is a scientific question. It could be settled by science. And he ventured to say in his characteristic humility, and I think currently the answer is no. Uh, All the evidence indicates that there is no such being. Really? God, the creator. Now, Thor, you could find evidence of Thor scientifically, right? Because, you know, lightning strikes and stuff like that, and plus he's not that bright. He's not so smart. Zeus, You can find evidence of Zeus, Marduk. Superhumans you can find evidence of. But you're talking about the creator of the universe. So the laws of nature that science uses to discover things, who made those? God did. The brains that science uses to calculate on the laws of nature, who made that? The traces and evidence that science uses to test the laws using the brains. Who made that? The creator, God. So really, you think that that God is an item within the inventory of what science is capable of discovering? Actually, there's a lot of stuff that science is actually incapable of discovering. Science is really, this is, Okay, this is, a, this is for free. This part's for free, extra. Science is actually a rather limited uh, ability. Science can explain things that are inert, driven by mechanical, mathematical laws. That's what science does. Anything that doesn't fit that description, inert objects driven by mechanical, mathematical laws, is outside the range of science. So actually, unless you are made up entirely of inert things driven by mechanical laws, science can't even explain you. And lo and behold, they haven't been able to so far. Uh, And they're really not going to be able to explain (coughs) God. Uh, God is not the kind of thing that can be found by science. Only rather small guards. Gods could be investigated by science. How much evidence of God is there going to be in the world? Let me ask it a different way: How much evidence of God that God doesn't mean for there to be is there going to be in the world? None. Exactly zero. Now I really think, and this is a, this is. I, even we get caught up in the small God trap sometimes. I really think that we're out there saying, you know, God just probably doesn't read much. And so he he's up there not realizing that we've got cyclotrons now. Oh, I never expected them to discover, you know, radio telescopy. Ah, uh, I'm in trouble now. They're going to catch me. Oh, dear. You know, really? We're, we're not talking about Thor here, who's not the brightest, you know, bulb in the the package. We're talking about God. The evidence for God will be what God chooses for it to be. And it will be exactly that much. Whatever he chooses to give us, that's the evidence that we will have. And there's plenty. We've talked about this many times. Just because people don't believe in God doesn't mean that the evidence is not strong for God. It's not a question of the evidence. It's a question of the will, I actually have to change my life dramatically if I believe in God. And so it's a different kind of issue rather than just a question of evidence. God will give us the, uh, precisely the evidence that he wants us to have and no more and no less. We're atheists about gods that can't help but be found by science. Don't expect evidence of an all-wise creator in breakdowns in his creation. That's not the place to look. The main evidence of an all-wise creator won't be in the breakdowns in his creation. Now, this is a place where I'm kind of on a warpath, I will say. I'm a, I'm a Christian evidences guy. I've spent most of my academic life doing Christian evidences, apologetics, and so forth. Every degree I've pursued, I've, I've zeroed in on the elements of that degree that would help me pursue Christian evidences and apologetics. But I found that we've kind of, as Christians, we've kind of veered over into, let's look for the breakdowns in nature for the evidence for God. Now, when there are those, and there may be some of those, those are very dramatic, and they can be very persuasive. You know, here's a place where evolution, you know, fails to explain everything, or here the origin of life is very puzzling, or things like that, and i I'm not saying that those aren't helpful sometimes. But but let's not forget uh, that the main evidence for God is not breakdowns in the system of nature that God designed. Right? The main evidence for God is in the wisdom of the system that God designed. Um, Think about it this way. What's a good movie versus a bad movie? A good movie, evidencing a good director, is a movie in which everything that happens within the movie sort of makes sense in terms of the movie. Now, it may be a wild, fantastic movie, but within the world created for the purposes of the movie, everything kind of follows. There's a logic to it, right? What's a bad movie? Well, a bad movie is one where you're, it's clear that the director kind of got stuck, and so he just spliced stuff together. Right? That's a, that's a bad movie. A really terrible movie is a movie when you see the wires. Right? It takes you out of the world because you actually see the wires. I'm thinking of Plan 9 from Outer Space, which usually heads the list of worst movies of all time. They actually have a tin pie plate, upside down, set on fire with lighter fluid, and little wires for the flying saucer coming through the air. It's awesome. You, You need to watch it just for the experience. That's one of it. Well, that takes you out of the experience of the world that the movie created and into thinking about, oh, the director was doing this. He was saving money and blah, 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 blah. So this is God's creation. Why are we constantly directing people to look for breaks in God's creation? We should be directing people to say, it's incredible that the creation is such a beautiful machine as it is. There may be a few places where he shows his hand directly. But far more places where he shows, I have made a wonderful creation that holds together. I I say this because... I find a lot of Christians are terrified now by the advance of science. Every time science makes an advance, there, there is a group of Christians who feel like, oh no, oh no. Now why would Christians feel that way? Science makes advances. Human beings made in the image of God. God says, I want you to have dominion over my earth. Science allows human beings to actually do what God created them to do why would Christians be feeling oh no we discovered something else that fits together naturally why would we feel that way anybody care to hazard a speculation or two because of our lack of understanding that God created us to do just that I think that is part of it I really do We've got a song in our hymnals. I love, it used to be 728B in some of the hymnals. I don't know what number it is now, but uh, yeah, our God, he is alive. And I love verse 1, I love verse 2, and I love verse 4. Verse 3 is really problematic for me now, you know? Because that's the one that says, basically, it's making the argument that, well, you know, whatever science has sought for, at least it still doesn't understand where life comes from. Right? Well, it may be. We just don't know. Until science tries to discover it, we just don't know what science is and isn't going to be able to understand. But, but that's not the main evidence for God. Whether or not science can or can't understand the origin of life, that's not the main evidence for God. The fact that science can understand anything at all, that's the evidence for God. Every time science makes an advance, that's evidence that this is actually what God, the Bible says, the world is. It is a rational creation by a rational God for us, his image bearers, who have the command, You shall have dominion over this world. Right? Science is one of the ways in which we human beings exercise dominion. Every time the world actually allows us to understand it on a deeper level, that's another sign that God is real and that this is a rational world. If you think about it, if the world truly came from chaos, just random chance, what would the odds be that the deeper we look, the more laws we would find? What would we expect to find? If you really thought the world came from chaos, just chance is underneath everything else, what would we expect to find once we start looking deep enough? More chaos. We just expect to find chaos. And what do we keep finding? The deeper we go, the more laws we find, the more beautiful order that we find. That's what you'd expect to find if in fact the world is designed by A rational creator who also gave us rationality. It drives me nuts when Christians start feeling this antipathy to science. Now I understand there are some there are some specific issues having to do with evolution, having to do with the age of the earth, and things like that. Those are very small issues compared to this larger issue. Uh, Overall, Christians make by far the best scientists. And Christianity itself is the reason, I think, why the world has science in the form that it has it. I'm not sure that you can have very many other cultures which could have given birth to Christianity. So it just kind of drives me nuts that Christians are afraid of science. We should look for, primarily for evidence for God in the wisdom in which the, the way the world is created. Some of the evidence that I would point to of a wise creator, the fact that the world is law-like rather than chaotic, (laughs) the fact that science works at all is an excellent evidence that God is the creator. The fact that the world makes possible human dominion. Einstein said, the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. And he's basically pointing out why, you know, if the hypothesis of pure chance is right, why in the world would there be this deep match between the way nature operates and the way our brains operate? Those two things shouldn't go together, and yet again and again and again, science demonstrates that they do. Well, it makes perfect sense if there's a God who created us and created the world, but it doesn't make any sense at all on the chaos hypothesis. He says that's incomprehensible. And in fact, Einstein talked about God a lot. Uh, be careful with Einstein. He, when he talks about God, he's not talking about the God of the Bible. But he, is t- he isn't talking about pure materialism either. He actually needs a God to do one particular job. The job that God does for Einstein is, he is the one that guarantees science keeps working, that there is some kind of deep match between the best human rationality and the actual laws of nature. And so he believed that there was something, you know, I don't think he even thought it was personal, but there was some principle out there that guaranteed that science kept on working. Well, I think he's right, he just didn't understand what it was he was talking about. He's talking about the creator God, the God that's described in the Bible. I think a world filled with beauty is evidence of God. These aren't breaks in the laws of nature, this is the way nature is. What are the prettiest parts of your environment? Besides your wife, I know you got to be loyal, but what are the prettiest parts of your environment and what are the ugliest parts of your environment? You don't have to tell me. Just run down a list in your mind, and I'm guaranteeing you, the stuff you put on the pretty list is mostly stuff God made. (laughs) And the stuff you put on the ugly list is mostly stuff we made, right? God makes beauty whether you notice it or not. He makes it so you will notice it, but he makes it for his own sake too, because beauty is wonderful. God makes constellations that no human eye will ever see because he wants to look at them, or he wants to share it with the angels or whatever. He likes, he's an artist God, and beauty for its own sake is a wonderful thing. Why is our world so full of beauty? Uh, That's actually a puzzle, a fairly deep puzzle about the world that uh, many people have argued about. Uh, a a world in which moral realities transcend either human psychology or human society. Uh, In a naturalistic world, you kind of have to say, yeah, I know you think murder is wrong, and I know you think it's wrong to steal and stuff like that, but actually, it's, uh, it's always that, but actually, but actually really what you think of as moral absolutes are really just kind of a quirk of human psychology programmed in you by evolution or programmed in you by uh, you know, the way the societies in which you happen to live and so forth and so on. There can't be real moral facts. There can only be projections of human psychology or projections of human sociology. Well, that's just not the way it appears to be. And so as Christians, I think we should just take the world Take the data as it appears to be. It looks as if, not that I am projecting moral realities on the world, or that society is projecting moral realities on the world, it actually looks the opposite. It looks as if those moral realities hit us the same way physical reality hits us. We are impinged upon by moral truths as strongly, and at times even more strongly, than we are impinged upon by vision, and hearing, and taste, and touch, and sight. I know it's wrong to murder. I know it's wrong to steal. Even when I want to do those things, even when society wants to do those things, we know it's wrong. That, that is impinging on us. Well, that makes perfect sense in a world created by God. That's one of the evidences of God that exists within our world that we need to point people to. and a world in which it's not absurd, to try and live a good life. Um, One of the points that I think, one of the the real soft spots of the current secularist worldview is the fact that if you scratch its surface, it's telling everybody your life is meaningless. It's telling everybody that. Now, obviously they don't lead with that. They lead with, you know, come over to the non-Christian side. You can have lots of sex and lots of drugs and stuff like that. But, but the real message is uh, you have this freedom because nothing matters at all. This is an absurd universe. It happened by chance. You are just a little bit of dust blown around in the wind, essentially. And, uh, you know, whatever you happen to feel like doing is fine because there's nothing that's either fine or not fine. It's absurd. It is meaningless. And the trouble is, human beings can't live like that. Human beings have to believe that it makes a difference whether I care for my wife and child or whether I go off and just get wasted and let them starve. Human beings have to believe that, that it it matters whether or not I make something of myself and try to become what you know, I have the capacity to be, or whether I just blow all my chances and just smoke it all away. Human beings, we can't exist without believing that our life has purpose, that it matters whether we try to live a noble life or not. And yet, our current worldview tells us it doesn't matter at all because nothing matters. There is no moral vector at all. But obviously, in a God-centered world, then it really does matter. You are made in God's image. You are God's image bearer. You have a particular thing that only you can accomplish, Uh, a way in which you can image God that maybe nobody else on the whole planet can image. Certainly nobody else in your particular congregation, your particular environment can image him. That's what you're called to do, and it matters that you live out that ministry. That's what we should be, I think, pointing people to. And I think there are some other evidences as well, that, that you know, areas where science fails or is on the wrong track, and it's okay to point those out, but I think we need to be making sure that we keep hammering away at what an incredible, well-designed, well-put-together world we live in that testifies to the one true God so we don't get off track and worship all the false gods that are out there. Okay. That's it for my uh, little presentation. And now we have time for QA. Is that correct? And what do we have? Maybe 10 minutes, 15 minutes, something like that? All right. when I, I teach undergraduate and graduate Christian Evidences style classes, and both, both audiences, I say again and again and again, really important to listen more than you talk. Really important to listen, because um, most of us have a set of answers sort of queued up, but the answers you have queued up May not be relating to what the person is really asking about. So, I uh, I really recommend strongly uh, listening more than you talk, especially at first. When I have people come in and ask me about their faith and stuff in my office, I will I will spend one or two sessions just asking them questions, and and I don't immediately rise to debate. You know, when they say, "Well, I just think all paths lead to God eventually," or You know, I just, I'm not, I think all morals are relative or whatever. I mean, I have great answers queued up for all that, but I don't want to immediately jump on that bandwagon. I want to hear what their real concern is and and then maybe answer that and deal with it. So that would be one thing. And then the other thing is, make sure you're not arguing about one of these little gods. You know, don't get involved in a, you know, one of these debates that, that doesn't even relate to the real god in the first place. Yeah. healthier um, is for us to talk about the bigger story about science. For a lot of churches, when we talk about science, what are we going to talk about? Science and religion. We're going to talk about one of two topics, evolution or age of the earth, right? And those two are very closely tied to each other. Well, because we've been talking about those so long, the defenses are built up the strongest right there. It's sort of like the Germans attacking the Maginot Line. You know, the French said, hey, they came right through here last, last war, so we're going to build up this massive wall of defenses. And the Germans were smart. They said, I don't think we want to attack that. Let's go through Belgium. Let's do it the other way. And, um, and so I don't think, I, you know, I think there are problems with the theory of evolution and so forth, but I don't, I don't encourage people to spend a lot of time worrying about that yet. I think that's like three or four conversations in. I want to help people think about where does science actually come from and what does it take to actually make science work? And, you know, can you really sustain belief in science if you're also trying to believe that you're just uh, a bunch of random, you know, elements with no purpose and meaning? And, And I don't think you can sustain science in those situations. I mean, it's not... Is it an accident that science arose in Christian Europe? I don't think it is. I think Christianity supplies these foundational ideas. The world's really rational, and we really have the rationality to figure it out. And if we work at it, it's going to make sense. It may not make sense on the surface, but if we keep pushing, 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 we'll be able to find ways to do that. Those are all fundamentally theistic or Christian ideas. Um, science is now running I think on the inertia of the Christian worldview while trying to get away from some of the particulars of the Christian world. So I try to push those kind of things with folks. Is that did I answer your question? Did I veer off? Okay. I saw another hand. Yeah. I have a friend that I've been dialoguing with who now claims to be an atheist and I hear in my mind him saying something about circular argument how, in, in relation to the fact that approaching science from a Christian worldview, I think he would, if I had that conversation with him, I think he would back up and say, well, if you say there's a God and science proves God, and so when you approach science to prove God, I think do you see what how he could, I see him pointing to circular logic there so know how to to get out how to counter that claim. Yeah, yeah. So what he wants, I guess, is for you to, hmm, to say I'm neutral right. about God. Right. Yeah. So if you, if you, for, for him, if you start science from a neutral standpoint, it will take you away from God. Yeah. And any science that takes you back to God only does so because you're using science to prove it. Yeah, and I think in situations like that you need to question the assumptions of the question. Because anybody who tells you they're neutral about God. I mean, what if a husband comes in and says, I'm kinda neutral about my wife? What's really going on? (laughs) He's already gonna divorce her, right? You know, give me some arguments to stay married. I'm kinda neutral on this whole Well, he's already going to divorce her, right? Anybody who tells you they're neutral about God, which is the single most important question that any human being ever faces, they're just lying to themselves. And the idea that we can be neutral about every question is nonsense. It's actually nonsense with a long 300-year pedigree. That's, That's part of the Enlightenment myth, that there's somehow that human beings can abstract themselves from their own lives and you know, sort of rationally rise above it all. But the fact is, he's living a life, he's living a certain kind of life, he's not neutral. Nobody's neutral about this. You're going to take one position or another. All you can ever do is be honest, which he's not being, and, and you can encourage pe- other people to be honest by yourself being honest and saying, "These are where I, this is where I'm starting, and what's the evidence you know, that we can share with each other from these starting positions? Yeah, don't uh, yeah, that neutrality thing? That's a that's a long-standing myth. Goes back to Descartes and others, but uh, it's just a lot of bull. Yeah. Sir, my wife is a uh, is an environmental chemist. Yeah. And she and I, and she's a very strong Christian. And she she and I have talked for uh, a period of time about carbon dating. Yeah. And carbon dating methods. And many of you probably know this, Bishop Usher took the dates of the Bible and formulated formulated his calendar and said that creation was in 4,004 B.C. Yeah. Archaeological evidence says that the city of Jericho dates to about 6,000, 7,000 B.C. Yeah. So, as far as using carbon dating methods, how far back can we go before carbon dating is ineffective? If if Bishop Usher took the dates and made creation at 4,004 B.C. in his calendar. And Jericho was several thousand years old. then can we justify taking the creation date, and moving it back further than that? Yeah,: that's beyond a good seven, beyond 7, <coughs> Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, yeah, Bishop Usher, um, uh, you know, he, he got those dates by calculating a particular date for Abraham and then running back the genealogies. Uh, and, uh, and coming up with it, I think he ended up on October, 9 o'clock October 31st or something like that, 4004 B.C. But you got to remember, Usher. if you actually run that calculation, Usher's own calculation, you actually get 4032 or something like that B.C. But he didn't like that. He thought Jesus was born in 4 B.C., and he thought it was a much neater package if the whole thing was a Sabbath week. The whole of human history would turn out to be a Sabbath week with, um, uh, with, with a, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day so he, he wanted 6,000 years plus the millennial reign of Christ You know, so he had 4,000 uh, and 4 BC up to 4 BC 4 days then he was planning for 2 more days uh, and so he thought the millennial reign of Christ would start in about 1996 I guess that would be and, uh, and then that would That was, you know, kind of how he did his figures. And, of course, the problem with using just those to try and arrive at a date for the creation is, one, we know that the Hebrews weren't that concerned with uh, every stage in their genealogies. Every genealogy we're capable of checking. We know that they leave gaps. They skip over generations and stuff like that. So that's not their primary concern. They wanted to know who was descended from whom. Like, just like if you talk to the ladies in your church that are into genealogies. They don't tell you everybody. They tell you, yeah, we're third cousins to Queen Elizabeth. You know, they're, they're going to tell you the important people. And, and there's something like that going on in the, the Hebrew genealogies. As far as the date of the earth, I, I'll come clean in this audience and on I am not a young earth person, I'm actually an old earth person. I actually think the, the evidence for an older earth is stronger than the evidence for evolution. Uh, and so, and I, and I don't claim to be an expert on either, but I think, I think there is pretty strong evidence for an older earth. So I think that the Bible's not trying to give us a precise date. I think it's, it's, it's doing some other things instead of that. Yeah. Question: How old? To to this, how old was Adam on day seven? <laughs> <laughs> he was one day old by calculations? Right. But he was full-grown adult and mature. Yeah, he looked at least eighteen, maybe twenty. Yeah. All right. So when God created the carbon, oxygen, sure. hydrogen molecules, they were, instantaneously they were one day old. Yeah. But if, if you took it down in a scientific laboratory and broke it down, you would have a much bigger date. Yeah. That's that's a point. The appearance right. age still, uh, science does not want to place that. Yeah, yeah, and that's certainly true. That's certainly a possibility. God's going to create things. Uh, if He creates directly, then He's going to create things uh, in a way that will, if you assume God didn't do it, you're going to get a wrong reading, and that's always a danger. That's true. Yeah. Um, in our in our churches, we seem to kind of center more on questions that surround evidence for you know specific dates. And kind of our approach to apologetics right. is more like what you might call evidentialism, for lack of a better term. Right. How can we encourage um, I guess our people and our preachers and teachers to think a lot more about the philosophical arguments, like what you were talking about earlier, <coughs> and, uh, and kind of question assumptions that people have in their questions. And of, I don't know. Go go towards that rather than honing in on specific debates about scientific evidence or the lack like thereof. Yeah, well, I like I said, I think that those uh, those debates are kind of where the argument has been for a long, long time, and so the the non-believers have really strong defenses there.
1: And they have really ready
0: answers, several several layers deep, for us. So I think it is a good tactical move if we can get people to move off of that. I don't know how do you um, how you change a culture. Um, just talk about other stuff. Uh, <laughs> I some other kinds of evidences. I I've recommended in your book a guy named Stephen Barr, uh, Modern Physics and Ancient Faith. Now he's not a he's not a young Earth. Person, he's an old Earth person. He's a um, tenured physicist at the University of Delaware, so he's mainly making arguments from the history of physics. He's got one argument in there from the history of metamathematics, Godel's incompleteness arguments. But basically, he's making this argument in that book, and it's it's worth having in your libraries. Uh, he's basically saying, look, if you took the best knowledge, best best calculations we could do in in you know, 1900, our best science, probably the overall message leaned towards atheism, or at least leaned towards materialism. But physics kept moving, and in the 20th century, there were five major things, he claims, that actually moved the needle so that now a person who's fully informed looks at the way physics is and some other things and says, This no longer fits with a materialistic point of view, this fits much better with a theistic point of view. The things he lists are the Big Bang Theory. This is is really odd because for most of us when we hear Big Bang, what do we tend to think? It's atheistic, it's anti-God, it's anti-creation. You realize how upset the atheists were with the Big Bang Theory when it first was postulated? Just remember, the Big Bang theory is not an explanation. It's a name for a lack of explanation. Because the Big Bang, a lot of us think of the Big Bang theory as sort of there was this particle and it blew up into all the planets and stuff. That's not it. The Big Bang is supposedly the first moment of time. All of time, all of space, all of matter, not just all of matter, all of time, all of space, all of matter are in that first moment that blows up. And so if you've got all of time there, what happened right before the Big Bang? Well, the answer is, there is no right before. So can there be a natural process that causes the Big Bang? No, because there's nothing right before the Big Bang. So he says the Big Bang was one of those things that the first people to resist it weren't religious people. The first people to resist it were the atheists. And they were shocked by it. Uh, and stunned by it. Uh, So he says that's one thing that moves the needle. He says the next thing that moves the needle is this, the deeper we go in physics, the more beauty and elegance we keep finding. Again and again and again, we find deeper and deeper beauty and elegance. Well, that doesn't make sense in a world that's just chance, just chaos. It makes sense if the world is rational. He says, third, we have discovered... That to get a universe at all, that even allows for the possibility of life to exist. You have to set up certain parameters of the laws of physics. Not just, you know, our planet. I'm talking about to make possible anything like our planet. The laws of the entire universe have to be set up in very precise ways in order to make life possible. And uh, and, and, And some of the tolerances are just ridiculous ridiculously tight. The cosmological constant has to be tuned to 10 to the 120th, Uh, and there are various other constants that are extremely tight as well. And so it's just, it's ridiculous to say that it just happened by chance. Uh, The third, uh, the fourth, he says, is quantum mechanics, the discovery that we don't live in in a mechanistic universe. Mechanism no longer works, and in fact, the standard interpretation of quantum mechanics says this These quantum events kind of require the interaction of an observer. That is consciousness, human consciousness or some other consciousness, is required in order to make these quantum events happen. And then fourth, he mentioned or fifth, he mentions Gödel's incompleteness theorems, which says we cannot cl- completely mechanize the way the mind does its thinking. We cannot give a, a Explanation of how the mind thinks—it's fully compatible with a materialist worldview. He says it's not materialist. So he says those five things. You know, we've really tilted the needle over. He doesn't say this proves God. It just a thinking person realizes, man, the evidence is tilting in favor of God now. So that might be that might be a resource, and there are some others that are like that. Sorry, that was longer than it was supposed to be. But yeah, whatever. That was great. No, no extra. Other questions? Or are we about out of time? Uh, Brother Andrew, I will look to you. Are there, are there other questions? Because I'm, I'm loving this. Because I like hearing myself talk. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I think again, if read the there, and if you mentioned, if you mentioned yeah of, of God and, and becomes difficult. can you just go back and, and revisit that for a few moments and and, um, and just maybe put it in perspective when we're talking with somebody that, that is honestly struggling with that what, yeah that's a good explanation. yeah well I think you should I, I think that's something we have to explain when God says he's jealous whenever I'm jealous it's not good uh mostly it's not a good thing Uh, whenever uh, I'm jealous, it's usually because of selfishness mixed in with love. Now, I will say this, love by its nature involves jealousy. And if you tell me that you love someone but you have no jealousy, you've actually told me you don't love them. And that's just That's just the facts, and I think that's the facts for God as well. But where jealousy becomes a negative emotion is when I let my own self-concerns take the predominance in my love. Wanting you to love me is a part of what love is. But when jealousy becomes toxic, which is what it normally does in us, is when I want you to love me so badly, I'm willing to distort who you are to get you to love me. I'm willing to bully you. I'm willing to extort you. I'm willing to put you in a box. In some cases, I'm willing to beat you in order to get you to do what I think you want to do. Well, that's not God. God's not doing those things to us. God is... Only doing what is going to make us bigger and better by getting us to worship Him. There's nothing about loving God that's ever going to distort who we are. It's only going to make us who we are meant to be. So, I, you know, we kind of need to help people realize God's not one of us. <laughs> again and again and again, we've got to get people to realize God is bigger than we imagine Him to be. He is not one of us. And, uh, that helps to clear up some of those issues. Yeah. just to play devil's advocate you on know, what he said, if you were to say that, my first initial thought, in trying to think how a person would think about that, would be, well, what then would the threat of hell be other than to pull us into love? Yeah. Well, I mean, I know a lot of people think of hell as as God's big threat. You know, I'm going to torture you forever if you don't love me, but Um, Augustine or Augustine uh, had a sermon one time in which he said to his congregation he said I have a deal for you imagine that I can say to you I will give you the ability to live forever and I will give you the ability to have anything that you choose to have granted to you any desire you have You'll have that desire satisfied. Any want you have, you'll have that want satisfied, except for this one. You will be forever out of touch with God. And he just let it lie there for a second. And then he said, now those of you who groaned in your heart right then, you're the ones that have come to understand who God really is. Because we know that if we have everything else that our hearts desire, and we lose God, we're in hell. That's what hell is. Because hell is, what, uh, hell is being cut off from the one thing that can make us human, which is God. So, you know, I, I'm glad that the descriptions of hell are scary. I think they need to be, because most of us are kind of stupid. Uh, and we need to be afraid of it but I think what hell really is is being cut off from God. And and we should be terrified of that. But it's not like God is going to, he needs to add fire or punishment to hell to make it worse. The worst thing, I mean, if you're in hell, the least of your problems are going to be fire. (laughs) You know? Your problem is you lost God. And you're stuck there. Stop losing God. Yeah. There's a whole other discussion about hell we can go into, but yeah. Is this fun? But Andrew's standing up. Okay, I'll sit down. No, thank you. That was excellent. Excellent. Thank you.